G'day, I'm Osher Ginsberg. And I'm Charlie Clawson. We are two dads who, when we found out we were going to be dads, went looking for a podcast that could help us navigate what it means to be a dad in the modern world. I mean, there were parenting podcasts, but they all seemed to be aimed at mums, or at the very least, mums and dads. Yeah, there were no podcasts for dads specifically, and certainly not dads who want to be hands-on and do their share of raising their children. So, we started Dad Pod. A podcast by dads, for dads who don't want to be shit dads. <laughs> Each week we share our own stories from the good and the bad to the thermonuclear tantrums, as well as talk with some of the biggest experts in the field to help all of us become better dads. So if you're a dad, a mum dad, or a dad to be, search Dad Pod where you get your podcasts. The following episode of Fofop is rated MA. It contains alternating hosts, a rotating roster of guests, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who came here looking for one of those highbrow NPR-type podcasts. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deeg speaking. Hello and welcome to Fofop. I'm Charlie Clawson and my guest this week is Guy Davis. You know him as the Sultan of Cinema, the Pharaoh of the Flicks. And he's back once again to talk all things movies. Um, uh, again, uh, Guy was the one who's floated the topic because I have no imagination. <laughs> and I've been trying to think of a way, like a title, to how we could frame the discussion. And um, I thought we could call this the rear view mirror episode because you know how objects in the rear view mirror may appear bigger than they are? Well, we want to talk about filmmakers and actors that we thought were going to be bigger, but for whatever reason, their careers did not pan out in the way that you and I, with our astute observations, thought they would. I mean, a little caveat, it should be stated that I met both Chris Hemsworth and Margot Robbie in their very early days as actors, and I and I dismissed both of them as having no future in the business. So oh, for real? When it comes to picking talent, I am, yeah, I, I am the last guy who should be talking. <laughs> We wanted to we want to discuss uh, uh, actors and filmmakers that that uh, that we were captured by that we just waited to see what would happen with them. Um, so we can dive into it. I wanted to give an honourable mention first up because uh, uh, this guy has actually had a pretty good career. If you look at his IMDb credits, you know he's done over like 150 projects. Um, the actor Tom Wilson from the Back to the Future series, Biff Tannen, of course. Of course, now, yeah. The reason I want to bring him up is that. I, when you look at his IMDb, like you think about Back to the Future, like probably the biggest film of 1984 or whenever it came out, 1985, a huge hit around the world, you know, instant star for Michael J. Fox if he wasn't already a huge star from Family Ties. Mm. But the real MVP, I think, in that film is Tom Wilson. Like what he does with Piff Tannen and just one of the most hissable villains. Like even now when I see Back to the Future, the moment where George McFly knocks out Biff is still one of the greatest most heart-pounding moments of triumph. The nerds it's real stand-up and stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And and he also, you know, he plays middle-aged Biff and he plays teenage Biff and he does it all with such a kind of like charisma and aplomb, like really kind of scenery-chewing kind of villain. But he did not work within the, the following year. He did April Fool's Day. was the only film he did in the 12 months following Back to the Future. I was flabbergasted by that. Is it possible, Charlie, that he was just too good at being bad? And you sort of looked at me. Oh, you mean like sure he got around. Not, yeah, not even that. He was just so convincing as this uh, pushy, arrogant, bullying asshole that people were like, oh, God, there's got to be some touch of reality in that. It's you know, he can't be that good an actor at you know, and playing such a bad, bad person. Uh, I, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I got a little bit of a thrill maybe like 15 or so years later when he showed up on uh, the great TV series Freaks and Geeks playing and this geeks, PE yeah. teacher. Very, very apt casting on the part of Freaks and Geeks casting Biff Tannen as a, as a gym teacher, uh, who actually turned out to be a really great guy who started dating the mum of one of the uh, one of the geeks, the geekiest of the geeks, actually, and tried really hard to forge a bond with this kid, even though they were complete polarizers. It, it actually showed that Wilson had a bit of range to him. I mean, he probably displayed that he had range before that, but certainly to my eyes, it was like, 
you're right, we definitely underrated this guy. He should have been working a lot more than he did. Although, as you said, 150 uh, credits or so on the IMDb page, it's nothing to be sniffed at, is it? Mm. I mean, actors like to yeah, work. Well, actors like to work constantly. It is a job, after all. But yeah, but it is sometimes like those villain roles because generally, you know, the villain does is more colourful and, and does get to chew the scenery a bit more. It can be a real star-making vehicle. You know, you think of like Ray Fiennes in, in, in Schindler's List, and if you think about him over the course of that trilogy too, like when he plays Mad Dog Tannen <laughs> in the third one, mm. like it's like another completely different character. And or you know, even like the John, the sort of foreshadowing of Donald Trump with you know uh, in Back to the yeah. Future Two when he's playing the casino boss, like they're all quite different really and so he's got range but i just wanted to read you this one thing because i grabbed this off his imdb you you tell me do you think tom wilson wrote his own bio on imdb because it goes (laughs) tom tom wilson is a creative artist whose professional career has explored almost every imaginable artistic discipline blending them into a unique and very individual declaration of life in the arts. A man of fervent but private faith his whole life. The last few years have been interesting with hundreds of invitations to speak at conferences and retreats, as well as the opportunity to record the music that he began playing in the church in the 1970s. (laughs) Okay. Here's who wrote this. Tom Wilson's mum, Tom Wilson's partner, or Tom Wilson's pastor. (laughs) When you see IMDb profiles like that, that that are real testimonies you know and really you may know this from the you know i'm bit on the blacklist that time but i'll tell you what they've actually written like um a couple of operas and uh you know they studied as a mime at the sorbonne for a while all this business and you may also remember them shilling juice on that commercial so yeah i always find it i find that hilarious when you see ones like that but i think in tom wilson's it may well justify it. Um, one thing you were saying, though, about how, how villains have more flourishes, something that I think mm. may have stopped Wilson from, be going, from being bigger, and you're right that across the Back to the Future trilogy, he sort of played a variety of roles. But I think he's best known as 50-era Biff Tannen. And Biff is such a, a blunt instrument of a villain. He's not necessarily... Mm. You know, there are some villains that even when they're terrible, like you mentioned Ray Fine Schindler's List, going to aspire to be Eamon Goethe in Schindler's List. But Fine brings a kind of almost coolness to it. And also, mm. it doesn't hurt that he looks like Ray Fiennes. He's kind of handsome. Um, whereas, yeah, you know, I think Tom Wilson is just, he's this big, blocky, blunt instrument of a person who would just, you know, give you the atomic wedgie. No one wants to be reminded of that. <laughs> no one aspires to be... So yeah, it speaks to a lack of imagination on casting directors' parts that they didn't. Uh, I don't know. Put him up for more stuff. Uh, so Tom Wilson, uh, he was my honourable mention. Um, uh, but uh, let's let's start. Let's start with some filmmakers that we uh, that hit the scene hot that we thought were going to have bigger careers. Um, I want to start with uh, Richard Kelly, Donnie Darko director uh, mm. Richard Kelly, who again is is someone who hasn't had like a bad career. It's not like he made one film and disappeared. You know, he's worked with Tony Scott, you know, he's, uh, uh, he's written some TV. Uh, he appears like he has another film in the works. Um, but when you think about the cult following of Donnie Darko and the potential of where, you know, that could have gone, you know, maybe a Darren Aronofsky type career where he sort of keeps making art house films and then breaks through with a mainstream film. It never really happened. And I remember hearing an interview with him, he did Kevin Smith's podcast a while back, like maybe I'm thinking almost eight or nine years ago I listened to it. And there was a real wistfulness when he was talking to Kevin Smith. And Kevin Smith is, you know, he's forged his own career away from being a filmmaker. He's now more of a kind of just like, I guess, a an identity. But Richard Kelly in talking to Kevin Smith and what Kevin Smith has done, you could sense there was this kind of like, I don't know if it was envy, but a wistfulness about, oh, man, like you parlayed whatever little success you had with Clerks and that, you know, Askewniverse, and you've turned it into your own cottage industry. And you, I just got the feeling that maybe Richard Kelly thought, oh, I had a missed opportunity with the Darkiverse. I could have turned that into something. <laughs> it's true. Well, when you look at Donnie Darko, I mean, or when you looked at Donnie Darko back 20-something years ago when it came, because it was 2000, wasn't it? Yeah, I think when it came out. Mm, was it? Yeah, right. Yeah, even at that early stage, and this was just the, uh, 
sort of the very uh, origin of DVDs and special features and commentaries and all that, it was very apparent that he had stuff that extended out of the frame. He had a whole mythology about Donnie Darko and time travel and everything that sort of wove that story together. There was a whole lot going on. And, you know, you have to, you know, sort of, you'd have to find Easter eggs on the, on the DVD or Blu-ray to sort of know a bit more, or there was stuff online that you, there were reams and reams of material that you could read. So, yeah, I mean, this is a guy who's clearly not short of imagination and not short of ambition either. Um, And sometimes, you know, the reach exceeds the grasp. I think as we saw with his second film, Southland Tales, which, uh, Mm. yeah, I think a lot of people saw that and went, Okay, yeah, this <laughs> we need to put some reins on this guy. We need to put some brakes on this guy because you leave him to his own, um, you give him his druthers and he just takes it and runs with it. And occasionally you get something that's, I, I, I think I see what you're going for here, but I don't really understand it and I'm not sure I like it. <laughs> it's funny with him. Like, I, I think Southland Tales is, is a mess. I, I know that there's been a bit of a... Uh, a movement lately to mm. sort of uh, look back at it fondly as some kind of like you know undiscovered you know masterpiece, but I I just I just think it like you say it's just someone who is given too much creative freedom and and it just goes in all different directions and I think that's confirmed by the Blu-ray uh, uh, director's cut of Donnie Darko. Oh right, yeah. Because you watch the director's cut and it's and it's much much more it, it is so much inferior to the studio cut. <laughs> it does, that doesn't often happen. But the musical choices, the scenes that they include, it's it's a worse cut. Like Because apparently I think in the making of Donnie Ducker, he did have some battle with the studios who didn't know mm. what to make of the film. And so they insisted on the cut that went to theatres. And that is, that is the better cut. But then obviously he got this big cult following and people were probably blowing a bit of smoke. And so he was given greater freedom with Southland Tales, and that's the end result. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that the director's cut of Donnie Darko, the first music cue, the one that runs over the opening credits, it's not Echo and the Bunny Men, it's something else? Yeah, I think it's in, in excess, never tear us apart. Or is that actually in the, or is that in the original? I think cut? that might be over the party scene later. Yeah, I think they th- do throw in some in right. excess. But I mean,. I think one of the things that makes Richard Kelly Rich Kelly or gives him his his juice is that opening sequence of Donnie Darko that kicks off with uh, it's, it's the Killing Moon by Cow and the Bunnymen, which is mm. it's one of the perfect meldings of music and sorry I'm going to put my wanky film critic beret on here <laughs> mise en scène you know it's uh, it really sets <laughs> nice. it really sets the tone. You know, and it's such a great choice for Kelly to say, "No, I don't think I like that. I think I want to change that." It's like, no, dude, <laughs> that's one of the best choices in the movie. But I mean, looking at Donnie Darko, you're right. I mean, there's stuff in there that's so imaginative. I mean, that whole sequence—it's like I think it's a one-take thing, or if it's not literally one take, it's cut together so it feels like one take. Where they're introducing into the school and the characters in the school, the teachers and the students and all that kind of stuff. And it's all, all done to um, Tears for Fears. And it, yeah, it's so mm. well done. It's like, oh, wow, yeah, this guy's really got something. And yeah, you wouldn't be surprised mm. that people would just throw money at him or throw accolades at him and just say, do what you like because, yeah, we trust you, except trust is sometimes misplaced. <laughs> You feel like if Richard Kelly had made Donnie Darko in, say, you know, 2010, that he's the kind of director that Marvel would have snapped up and said, okay, go make Doctor Strange. Like he's he has that indie mm. sort of pedigree, which then you think a studio would like, well, we can boss this guy around. He's made one film. He'd be the Josh Trank. Yeah. <laughs> He'd be the Josh Trank of, uh, let's, of let's not wish Josh Trankness on anyone. You would think that uh, something like Southland Tales would, um, you know, kill a career stone dead, but he actually made <laughs> another movie after that called The Box, this uh, metaphysical sci-fi thriller starring Cameron Diaz and James Marsden. It's based on a short story by the great Richard Matheson. Uh, and the premise is you've got this couple that are sort of getting by, not quite, you know, things are a little bit tough. A stranger rocks up to the door uh, with a box in his hand, says the little red button on this box. If you press the little red button... A million dollars in a case will arrive at your door. But 
somewhere, somewhere in the world will drop dead because of what you've done. You don't know them, but they're dead regardless because of what you did. Hmm. Well, I could use a million bucks, but do I really want that on my conscience? And um, it's a good, tight sort of moral dilemma thriller, I, I think, on the page. And, of, of course, our boy Kelly can't help himself. He throws in a whole bunch of weird shit at the end. So that may be the reason that uh, no one's picking up at this stage what Mr. Kelly's putting down. It's like, oh, can we trust you not to throw in, like, strange water tentacles and kind of business? Because that seems to be one of his motifs. Mm. You see you see water tentacles in a lot of his stuff. So, uh, I don't know. I, I'm Based on Donnie Darko alone, I'm pulling for the guy to make a comeback. Well, it sort of feels like when you're a director who hits the scene like that, you go in two different directions. You either go the sort of Aronofsky, I'm going to keep making my art house type films for a mm. while, or you've got to do the lily pad jump from increasingly bigger films to get to your, to your studio film. But he... Yeah. I don't think he quite, he didn't, Southland Tales and The Box, they weren't successful enough for him to, to adequately do that, but they were too big to be considered, you know, little art house films as well. Yeah, I think that one of the bad things for, for Kelly is that he sort of, hit, hit, he arrived on the scene just as Prestige TV was happening, but ah, yeah. he, he wasn't able to sort of take advantage of that. I mean, him at the helm of some show for like FX or not even one of the huge ones like HBO, but uh, you put him in charge of a uh, a weird superhero project, something like maybe Legion. Did you ever see Legion? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, totally. He's really good with something like that. But, yeah, hundred uh, percent. That that's a really that's a really good call. <laughs> like he should have been making Legion. It has <laughs> shades of Donnie Darko all over it, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Uh, now, uh, shall I go with my first yes. choice for looking in the rearview mirror? Yeah, it's a gentleman named Paul Brickman. Mm, this is this is fascinating. This suggestion. Who was yeah, Paul Brickman, guy? Now, children of the eighties uh, will know Paul Brickman as the writer director of Risky Business. Uh, you know, there was a time in the eighties when I was you know invited to teenage parties to watch movies and things like that. And sometimes, you know, you wouldn't want Up the Creek or you know your typical <laughs> um, what do you call them? teenage boner comedy you, you wanted yeah. something a little more something with a higher thread count and that's when it's like should we watch busy business again guys that one never gets old and it never does it's no. such a great movie i mean not just a legitimately good teen sex comedy story or whatever coming of a, age a legitimately good movie just so and so quotable so many good quotes Porsche. Yeah, michael mann substitute. made a sex comedy <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember because I first saw it on network TV. You know, back in the for the younger listeners out there, you know, back when you'd watch movies on like free to air and they put ads in, yeah. and they obviously had um, the uh, modified had the for TV days, modified for TV, and so the you know the key line of the entire uh, film is sometimes you got to say what the fuck, yeah. which they would change to sometimes you got to say what the hell, <laughs> I'm Mister <laughs> Black. <laughs> Didn't have quite the same impact when sometimes you're going to say, what the hell? Not really. Yeah, the central idea of your film has kind of been cut off at the knees. Um, but based on Risky Business, which, you know, I think was made for something like $6 million and made something like $60 million, uh, yeah. maybe just in the US or worldwide, but still a decent return on investment. You think Brickman would be, you know, have the world at his feet. It took him another six years to actually direct another movie. It was a um, a bit of a, a, a drama called Men Don't Leave, starring Jessica mm. Lange, uh, which did zero business. And after that, he just vanished off the scene entirely. Mm. Um, I'm not sure whether he did script doctoring work or anything like that. Apparently, I mean, I, I read an interview with him that was done a few years ago because he's quite reclusive now, apparently. He doesn't do a lot of interviews and all this kind of stuff. But he uh, got on the line with this guy and he said, look, yeah, he was offered things. He was offered Rain Man, for instance, starring Risky Business star Tom Cruise, which was, I think, it was certainly the Oscar winner of its year, I think 1988, but also yeah, like one of the biggest hits of the year as well. Uh, he yeah. was offered Forrest Gump. Uh -huh. um, and this was just, these were the two highest pro, oh, high profile titles. Eddie said he was offered hundreds of projects, but just didn't take up take him up on them. Now, he admits that... Um, in his words, he doesn't dig visibility. Oh, no, sorry. 
he doesn't dig visibility. He's more from the JD Stallinger school. So he's right. someone who doesn't necessarily like recluse. being in the public eye. Uh, so maybe that's the case. But I mean, prior to Risky Business, he had a you know career as a screenwriter. He had a few produced uh, scripts under his belt. He wrote a Bad News Bears sequel. He wrote a movie called Citizens Band, uh, directed by the late, great Jonathan Demme. One that maybe stands out the most, and that doesn't really stand out that much because it wasn't, wasn't much of a hit. In fact, it was probably a bit of a flop. It was called Deal of the Century. And it was a um, <laughs> had the unique combination of elements... Chevy Chase and Sigourney Weaver starring, The Exorcist mm. William Friedkin directing, and and Brickman writing. Now these are this is not chocolate. You got chocolate. And in my Gregory peanut butter. Hines too, and Gregory Hines as well. Yeah, wow. yeah. Now I I watched it again just recently, uh, tracked down a copy and had a look at it, and it's a real mess. It really yeah. is. But uh, Friedkin is just the wrong guy for. It. I mean, Friedkin is you know a fantastic. Uh, action drama filmmaker but comedy is not necessarily his strong suit no. but you listening to abusing the script or, his cast torturing that, and abusing his cast that's true, yeah. his strong suit. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see that uh chevy chase actually sort of knows what they're going for i mean it's, it's a bit of a black comedy about arms dealers and it chevy's sort of downplaying his uh, usual comic buffoonery playing a bit sort of a doing a comic spin on Humphrey Bogart almost as a bit of a, you know, uh, anti-hero works in the shadows kind of deal. And Brickman really adds a good bit of black comedy, taking the piss out of capitalism, all that kind of stuff. And I get that feeling he sort of explored that again in Risky Business. But as we were saying about Donnie Darko, the studio, I think it was Warner Brothers, got hold of, well, they saw what he was doing with Risky Business and said, uh... It's a little bleak. It's a little dark. You know, we mm. like that Tom Cruise. Do you think he can actually get away with some of the stuff that he's pulling? And uh, and of course, he sort of does at the end. Yeah. So uh, it, it's it's. Uh, I think maybe that uh, that probably soured Brickman on Hollywood a bit. The fact that he had these great ideas. I mean, he calls um, he calls risky business. Well, he what what he wanted to do was an exploration of the darker side of the lead character Joel uh, Joel Goodson, um, and uh, yeah, sort of have a darker tone to it. He said he was actually inspired by Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist, which is like, well, that's a bit highbrow, Paul. No, it's a bit of a weird <laughs> thing that you had Night Shift in 1982, which was about two kind of ordinary guys starting a brothel in a morgue, and then a year later <laughs> you have Risky Business, which is about a college student. So, like, clearly that was the uh, the, it was the it's Reagan's America, uh, you know, yeah. capitalism reigns. It's like the exploitation. Of women is untethered. I mean, I do remember Risky Business because you're right. It, it did sort of – it was marketed or at least put into that category of being like a teen sex comedy, like a Porky's or whatever, but had far yeah. more nuance and depth to it. Um, but also, we're talking about uh, Review Mirror, like Rebecca De Mornay, who sort of really did this and then The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. They're her two yeah. kind of most notable films, but – She's so good in Risky Business and has, like, a real kind of presence. It's amazing that she – like, that it made a star of Tom Cruise, but didn't really yeah. do the same for her. That's the thing, yeah. There was a, almost a 10-year gap between Risky Business and The Hand of Rocks the Crater, which is touted as a real comeback for her in, mm. I think, about 92 or so. But it is yeah. odd, yeah, that she uh, – It might be a bit of the Tom Wilson syndrome in that, well, uh, she played – you know, she played a hooker or something, hooker with a heart of gold, um, and it, and so she got typecast or maybe she turned down certain roles. And then it is also, I think, speaks to the kind of sexism of casting in that, you know, she was like the ingenue and then 10 years later they cast her as the kind of bunny boiler, you know. It's Absolutely, like, yeah. She has, no, she has no middle ground there, no depth, no nuance to like being a woman. It's like you have to be these specific archetypes to get employment. It really is a shame because, yeah, I mean, she is toe-to-toe with Cruz in Risky Business and honestly probably stealing the movie from him. I mean, Cruz is still yeah. – I mean, I think it's a pretty good performance by Cruz. He's not sort of I – I think he, I don't think he'd worked out his – that he was Tom Cruise at that stage. I think he was still no. an, an actor. But he, And he does a pretty good job playing a guy who's not necessarily the coolest dude on the block or the alpha male or anything like that. Joel's a bit of a loser. Yeah, he's a, <laughs> um, he's a dork. 
And she's yeah. very cool too. Like that's a thing. Like she yeah. she has real street cred and attitude. She's a very cool customer. It's mm. like it's actually a great supporting cast because it's uh, Curtis Armstrong's in it. Um, Bronson, is it Bronson Pinochet? Bronson Pinchot, yeah. Pinchot. Pinchot. <laughs> and, um, and obviously Joey Pants as Guido. <laughs> of course, Joey Pants. I'll tell you, one of the guys or one of the people that I was actually going to talk about on Whatever Happened To, mm. um, he shows up in two Cruise movies. It's, he's an actor named Bruce A. Young, and he's in The Colour of Money as um, sort of this legendary pool hustler, Moselle, that um, – uh, that uh, Paul Newman and Tom Cruise sort of not run afoul of, but they cross paths with him. But in Risky Business, he plays uh, Jackie, the transgender. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's right. know, and the, the first, the, the first, first calls the, up the uh, yeah. escort agency. Yeah, that's the one that gets sent over. Bruce Young is only in it for like maybe three minutes, but just has some inc- again terrific presence. But just like Joel, be a courageous person. Open the door. That way you see <laughs> all the cab. It's beautiful line reading it's just magnificent um yeah, yeah. i remember seeing bruce a. young in a couple of movies and thinking this guy's got real just oh he sort of leaps off the screen uh and i think he, again he's one of those guys like tom wilson who's kind of worked steadily but never really broke all the way through yeah but, uh, i mean <laughs> guy, this, this 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 kind of conversation keeps me up at night and especially as like you know, someone who's acted in some stuff as well. Like, I often will see, you know, a film will come on or, or I'll be scrolling through and I'll, I'll watch some film from 15 years ago and it'll be, you know, hypothetically, it's like a Will Smith vehicle and there's a guy playing his partner. And in my head, I'm like, I imagine the actor got that call from his agent saying, you are the second lead in a Will Smith film. And, mm-hmm. you know, he would have called his family and he was high-fiving and he did this film and the film maybe was middling and it didn't really <laughs> yeah. kick on for him. And now I'm watching it 15 years later on streaming. I'm like, who is this guy? But there would yeah. have been a moment <laughs> when that actually got that call yeah. from his agent where his imagination would have exploded where he's like, this is it. Like, this is this is the start of the rocket ship for me. Well, it doesn't happen for everyone. Yeah. That's why well, not everyone are stars. It's it's happened just recently with with another Tom Cruise movie with uh, with Top Gun Maverick. There's um, mm. an actor named Manny Jacinto, who's on um, he's on that TV series The Good Place. Right. Yep. Yeah, and apparently he had like a sizable role as one of the one of the flyboys, one of the uh, one of the pilots in mm. Top Gun Maverick, and all the people who love the good place were like oh man he's in a fantastic and um yeah he, he was basically sort of cut out of oh, the movie. Yeah. he's only in it very very briefly so you know manny was probably like top gun maverick baby you know we made it two yeah, years ago but it. it's coming out time for manny to shine and it's like where the fuck is he <laughs> well, <laughs> the isn't dude. that the famous story about kevin costner like that he was cast in like four or five films in the lead roles that got cut every time like i think he was meant to be in the big chill I yeah. think he had a bigger part in Night Shift. There's lo- there's all these films that Kevin Costner kept getting cut out of. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the only time you really see Costner in the um in the Big Chill is the um where his 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 corpse is being dressed for his uh, for his funeral. He's got the uh got the razor blade cuts in his wrist. That's that's all you see of Costner. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think in Night Shift he's one of the frat boys when they have the first like party, a frat party at the morgue. You see him yeah. walking behind Michael Keaton, like mm. chanting "chug chug chug" or something. But, <laughs> like he just all he had to do was write a film about dancing with a wolf, and <laughs> everything <laughs> changed from that point onward. Yeah, well, it happened to um, to Adrian Brody as well because apparently he his character in the Terrence Malick war movie, The Thin Red Line, mm. he was central, and then. Malik being Malik and just like, mm, no, I've got a different idea. I <laughs> decided to make Jim Caviezel the star at, at most of Brody's scenes. Now, luckily, mm. Brody went on to you know win an Oscar a few years later and all that kind of business. He's working right. He's fine. Jim Caviezel in the mean in the meantime has gone completely off the reservation. I don't know if you, he's he's a hundred percent QAnon now. Yeah, no, I I, yeah. I have kept an eye on that. Well, that's actually a good segue to the the next person I want to talk about. Um, I know this is a favourite film of yours. It's a, definitely one of my all-time favourite uh, films, which is Near Dark, Catherine Bigelow's uh, vampire masterpiece um, Ooh, yeah. of the late 80s. Uh, and there's an actress in it, um, Jenny Young, who plays May, the Jenny uh, ingenue. Jenny, oh, sorry, Jenny, Jenny Wright, um, uh, who plays the vampire ingenue who lures Adrian Pazdar. Pazdar, how do you pronounce his name? Is I think it's Pazdar. Pazdar. Um, and look, I think the strength of, of Near Dark, there's a lot of elements going in. It's clearly like 
Catherine Bigelow's eye. It's this amazing kind of ensemble cast. But she, uh, Catherine Bigelow's eye forecasting, um, you know, obviously with the with the vampire gang, well, that was easy for her to see because, you know, you just watch uh, Aliens, <laughs> just take <laughs> all the great character actors from Aliens and put them in your film. And I think she was married or dating Cameron at the time. But she really cast Jenny Wright perfectly in this because she has this kind of sort of fragile, alluring quality. Like Mm. I think in the making of on the Blu-ray of Near Dark, you know, uh, Catherine Bigelow talks about that moment where Adrian Pazdar sees her for the first time. It's this beautiful slow-mo under moonlight or streetlight at night, you know, and he's got to see her and fall in love with her instantly. And so she has this kind of quality. And the reason I sort of, wanted to bring her into this equation is like, I think she's amazing the role and stuff. And I didn't really sort of think about it too much, but when you watch the making of like the entire Adrian Pazda, who they interviewed, they all are like, what are that? We don't even know where Jenny is. Yes, yeah. <laughs> like, like, like what happened to Jenny? And so it kind of sent me on a bit of a, a rabbit hole. And so look, she did work and has worked since near dark, mainly in, in, in sort of TV. But I found this GoFundMe page which is a real journey. <laughs> mm. So she um, moved to the desert, essentially, uh, bought like, you know, an acreage in, in the middle of the desert somewhere with um, her husband, who was an artist, and they were living off the grid. Uh, and like she's posted all these photos and stuff. Now, it, it look, I'm not making light of this situation. It seems like it was a very bad situation. There's a bit of a domestic violence issue with this artist boyfriend slash husband of her, which she escaped. And so this GoFundMe is her sort of raising money. She wants to write a manuscript for a book to talk about her experiences. But I've been going through, so on the GoFundMe, she posts all these sort of updates. This starts in like January, 2016. And it is so bizarre because the things that she's posting, like the photos of the mobile home that they live in, you know, the desert where they live, it looks exactly like near dark. Like oh, if you wow. think about the way that family, you know, that vampire family, you know, they have this, it, it's kind of almost analogous to being like drug addicts. You know, they sort of mm. live in this mobile home and they black out the windows and they've always got to stay on the move. They can't stay in one place for too long. It's that kind of a lifestyle that she brings in. And the last entry that she wrote was November 15th, 2016. And so she's the whole, all the way along, she's been posting these updates of, you know, this is where I met with my book and I'm writing about this experience and that experience. And she's getting all these lovely messages of support from fans of hers who've donated money. She's almost there. She's $1,000 short of her $7,000 goal. So if you want to support Jenny Wright, you can go find it and fund me. <laughs> Get in there, folks. Yeah. Tell me this is not like this could be a sequel to Near Dark. She says, as I reflect on my experiences up on the mountain, I realize I must do much research on the dark art of necromancy and shape-shifting. There is so much that occurred that I do not understand yet. I do know that I laid myself bare to any sort of encroaching evil that might be near me. It was a poor Mexican mountain community, and I believe the attacks were not solely human, as perhaps Holy they shit. got to David and he was a victim as well. I'm going to crack open my super, get out a thousand bucks and send it to her so she can finish this manuscript. I want to read it based on this. Yeah. I mean, nothing prior to that. Like all the other updates are fairly kind of normal. You know, it's just her talking about, yeah, she escaped yeah. this horrible, abusive relationship and she's now, you know, living in the other side of the country and she's doing this and doing that. And then out of nowhere, the very last post is she believes that there's necromancy and shape shifting and some shit. kind of unexplainable evil that attacked them in, in, in Mexico. And I'm like, it's so weird. Like I, I was even like, I was scrolling through these photos going, this looks like it could be stills from a reboot of, of near dark. Mm. It, it's, I'm going to sound like a complete stalker here, but uh, I'm actually <laughs> Facebook friends with Jenny Wright. Um, oh. Not, not through any sort of legitimate friendship. I think it just came up one day as like people you might know. And I was yeah. like, do you mean the Jenny Wright? Because I mean, I, of course, had a major crush on her in the 80s because of, of, of Near Dark. She was in a movie with Anthony Michael Hall called Out of Bounds. I One of the times that. when, yeah, when uh, old AMH tried to break out of the John Hughes nerd prison that had been created for him. Uh, and she was the love interest in that. It's not a very good movie. Um, but she, I think she also has quite a, I'm going to sound like a right perv, a very memorable scene in the adaptation of The World According to Garp. Oh, yeah. Where she... Where she um, 
sorry guys she has a topless scene and i'm like and seeing that at age 13 i'm like it's the pig and tom scene yeah yeah um so i was like and like you i mean i'd seen the the near dark special features and yeah adrian pasdar seemed really like emotional if you're you're out there get in touch you know because yeah she she always had that real fragility on screen it was a it was a sort of a beguiling combination of like she seemed like a really street smart girl Mm. but also bad shit had happened that you know there were there were cracks there were cracks in the veneer or whatever uh and i don't know just i've i've found that fascinating and yeah when this facebook opportunity came up I was like, oh yes, I'd like to be friends with Jenny, right? And yeah, I was seeing a whole lot of those black and white pictures from the desert, and it's like, oh wow, it sounds like she's doing it tough, but she's getting out of it, and oh, that's good. So, yeah, well, um, it's, well, look, don't feel bad about your Facebook stalking because when it comes to stalking the cast of Near Dark, I uh, found out that Jeanette Goldstein runs a lingerie stop in um, <laughs> East LA, and so I drove out to that lingerie store uh, i don't wear lingerie i have never worn lingerie but i drove out to that store specifically to meet <laughs> Jeanette goldstein like and she was there she was working and so i i bought some um lingerie for for jen uh, uh, as a, a precursor really just to get to talk to her and she could not have been nicer she was cool as shit like i think she must have picked it oh he's another fucking nerd yeah he wants to talk about like aliens in near dark but she was totally cool man had, okay, had I you, asked her, had I you auditioned had you auditioned for the Near Dark uh, remake at that stage? Ah, uh, that's a good question. I don't. I think I had. I think the near. Did we talk about the Near Dark remake in a, a previous episode? Like, I'm not sure if we talked the, about it on the episode. I'm sure you've talked. I think you talked about it with Justin Hamilton. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. It was like the script was not good. It was. It was, they, and they offered nothing new. But I don't yeah. know if I did bring it up to her. She was very cool though, because the thing about Jeanette Goldstein is she. If you look at you know. Um, uh, Vasquez and Diamondback, you know, and they're so mm-hmm. different. She's actually this kind of like, you know, Jewish, um, uh, like East Coast uh, American. Mm-hmm. She's nothing. She's such a great character actor. Uh, yeah. But she was more than happy to kind of talk about. I mean, she, I think she's amazing. I think she's a, a like, talk about your reviews. Like, I think that yeah. in a just world, Jeanette Goldstein would be a huge star, like, as versatile as like a Meryl Streep or anything like that, yeah. and as committed. But or even if you want to be for whatever reason, yeah. Even if you want to be just real uh, reductive or simplistic about it, there's no reason why she couldn't have had the career that, say, Michelle Rodriguez had. I mean, mm. you know, Vasquez is kind of the precursor to everything that uh, Michelle Rodriguez does in the Fast and Furious franchise, and yeah. probably and probably better. You know, she, she actually told me about that. She said the issue with vasquez was that people thought she was hispanic Hispanic, and so she was getting called into auditions as the tough hispanic girl and people were like what you're like this (laughs) long island jewish are you not seeing my name is jeanette goldstein (laughs) yeah it's it's crazy i mean and she also has like a little cameo in titanic as well it's and it's like a blink and you'll miss it no no um, she's holding her she's holding her children as the um yeah playing an irish (laughs) an irish immigrant like she really is a phenomenal phenomenal actress maybe i should have actually swapped out jeanette goldstein for jenny right now that i think about it (laughs) and she's got the the t2 role as well the terminator 2 Mm. role yeah you don't that's the thing she maximizes screen time jeanette goldstein she does not waste a second that she's in front of the camera very much so all right moving on to my next one if that's all right yeah go ahead I could easily fanboy about Ginny uh, Wright and Jeanette Goldstein all day long, but <laughs> instead we'll we'll go to another another lady. Um, I um, Charlie, this may come as a shock, but I, I watched a lot of junk on video in the uh, in the nineteen nineties, <laughs> um, and but two things stick out specifically. Uh, there was one movie they both involve, shall we say, ingenues. One mm. movie I watched was Cyborg Two: Glass Shadow. Uh, which, which was one of the with first the appearances of a, a young Angelina actress Jolie. named Angelina Jolie. I thought this girl's going places. Yeah, keep Mate, it on when Angelina I worked, Jolie. When I worked at Movie Land in the mid to late nineties, and Cyborg Two came across my desk, and there was a they had a I guess it was on the start of her ascent because they had made her front and center of that. I was like. I don't know who this actress is, but she's a star. I don't, oh, know. Yeah. I don't know if she can act, but if she looks like that and she can string two words together, she's going to be a star. <laughs> now, it's funny you mentioned Ascent because one of the other things I watched uh, was a movie called Dark Angel, The Ascent, uh, which was uh, director video, I think made somewhere in Eastern Europe. 
the plot is essentially the daughter of a demon down in hell uh, is not enjoying hell. She's she's a typical teenager. She's like, oh, I want to go out and have fun. Oh, so she cool. gets out of hell and comes up to uh, comes up to earth. And of course, this being a director video movie in the 1990s, the first time you see her, she's totally naked. Um, this was a young actress named Angela Featherstone. Mm. And I looked at this young lady and said, Angela Featherstone's going places. She's going to be a star. Not quite on the level of Angelina Jolie, but <laughs> Angie had not a bad 90s. I mean, uh, certainly the latter half of the decade, you know, she was um, she was on Friends. I think she had a little bit of a run as uh, a waitress that Ross has a fling with. She was on a Seinfeld. Uh, no, she's the copy girl. She's the one who's like, Rossify it. She, when Ra- Ross oh, and Rachel are on their first break, she's the girl that Ross sleeps with to, right, to ruin yes. everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she, she's, yeah, she's, she's in Con Air. Yeah, she. Uh, sorry, I'm just looking at um, Dark Angel: The Ascent because I'm looking at the names of all these actors and like Constantin and Dragonesu, Christina Stoika, Constantin and Costamanis. And I'm like, where did they make this film? <laughs> Turns out Romania. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but maybe she's best known for um, she's the girlfriend in the wedding singer who dumps Adam Sandler. Yeah, and he, and of course he writes the um, very Kill angry me. love song. Yeah, very. <laughs> it's, about it. it's, that was the start of a repetitive theme in Adam Sandler comedies of the uh, of the unappealing ex girlfriend. Like it became it became a a trope of Adam Sandler films that you would cast a sort of name or semi name actress. There'd be yeah. one who'd be the hot, lovable one, and then there'd be the other one who's just like a, a sh- the, the shrew that you hated, and she yeah. was the kind of the pioneer <laughs> of that trope. <laughs> and I think and, she's well, I think she's super funny in the wedding scene. She only has a few scenes, but she's got that real kind of hilarious, vapid uh lack of self-awareness, which I always think is a really funny quality for an actor. Yeah. So I mean she's not without talent. She's got a striking look. I mean, mm. Charlie, are you familiar with the term market correction? Have you ever heard this one? Uh that, no. Uh, that there are certain actors who will Yeah. I think the best the best example that springs to mind right now is maybe you had Lindsay Lohan mm-hmm. and then Emma Stone came along. It's like, oh, Emma Stone's oh, yeah. doing everything that Lindsay Lohan can do, only better. And, you know, she's not drunk all the time. So yeah. that's a dreadful thing to say about Lindsay Lohan. But uh, I get the feeling Angela, Angela Featherstone, she sort of has the look. And you'll see it in other photos of her where she has, she's she's a redhead in Dark Angel, but she's generally blonde, I think. Mm. I think she, Angela Featherstone walked so Margot Robbie could run 20 years later. Right. Sort of that that look. Um, She's got a bit of the okay. Laurie, Petty, Laurie Petty's about her too. That sort of tough well, kind yeah. of tomboyish. Um, you know, like when she's got the short hair, like she's got that kind of pretty tomboy kind of quality, don't you think? Just enough androgyny to make you go, hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, well, you know, you know, she had a good 90s, worked a little bit in the 2000s. And then sort of dropped off the off, off the scene a bit. And I think, okay, well, unfortunately, that's life in the big city. You know, not everyone has three, four decade runs. Uh, yeah. But uh, I did a bit of research, and it yeah, it turns out that Angela, prior to you know her success in Hollywood, was doing it pretty tough. I mean, you know, she um, she had a fairly troubled past, included homelessness uh, and and a few cases of abuse and all this kind of stuff. She got herself Ugh. emancipated when she was 17 and in, almost instantly became like a really successful model and then moved yeah. into acting. Um, but once she started getting a bit successful, she couldn't really sort of keep the demons at bay. She was self-medicating a lot, all this kind of stuff. And she basically says that I literally threw all my money away at anyone who would take it. She was, uh, and she's almost, she reverted to being homeless for a while because it almost felt comfortable to her. Uh, but a happy ending. She's doing quite now, apparently as a writer. And uh, she's also established a school for, and a sort of a, a school slash therapy facility for kids who are aging out of foster care because that's her history as well. Right. So well, that is a happy ending. I mean, you do look at her last few credits in IMDb, and it's like mental patient, homeless woman. It's like yeah. fuck off, it's cruel. Well, that's <laughs> true. And she she worked with um, Australia's own Simon Baker a couple of times. So she's in the Guardian and the Mentalist. So uh, yeah, yeah. But 
but I, yeah, I mean, I just found it funny that around the early 90s, I was like, all right, here are guys' picks for female stars of the 1990s, Angelina Jolie and Angela Featherstone. Of course, Angelina Jolie became Angelina Jolie and Angela Featherstone, not quite as big, but apparently leading a fulfilling life now, which is good news. I, I always think that Taylor Kitsch must look at Chris Hemsworth and be like, motherfucker, stop my career. Like they both, <laughs> Thor came out the same year as John Carter of Mars and one of has course, gone like yeah. that and the other has gone like that. And it's like, I mean, they were both hunky dudes from TV mm. backgrounds and just one just got on that fucking Marvel gravy train has never looked back and the other one has just never quite had that vehicle. Was the, he was the big star on Friday Night Lights and just couldn't mm. find the right vehicle. I mean, Tom Selleck really had the same issue, yeah. right? Like, you know, if Indiana Jones had come off, then who knows where he'd be now. But I'm sure he's doing fine, you know, selling reverse mortgages to people. <laughs> well, I think but, Blue Bloods has been going for something like 10 years. So yeah, like, I, don't, hey. I don't think he's short on cash, but it is one of those things where it's like, it's amazing, isn't it, that someone can be a big star on TV and you're like, oh, just they'll, they'll get the right vehicle. But it, it just proves it doesn't, it's harder than you think, you know? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. They get infinite bites to the cherry. I mean, Ryan Reynolds got infinite bites to the cherry before he finally went and did himself with Deadpool. Like they kept trying to make him a star. I mean, Jai Courtney a few years ago, they just kept trying to make Jai Courtney happen and it just, yeah. it just doesn't take off for whatever reason. The longest running example of that for mine is Stephen Dorff. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, um, I think they first tried in like, I think he was like a child star or a child actor at least, but, you know, he hit his late teens or whatever, and he was in the uh, screen version of The Power of One. Power of One, that's back right. in, Yeah, and it's like, oh, that's going to make him a star. And I rem- Forgive me if I've talked about this before. I may have said this on uh, when we've spoken in the past, but he did some interview for either Premiere or Movie Line magazine in the 90s, and he just sledged by name all his <laughs> contemporaries. It's like... <laughs> I'm I'm reading this in Geelong, <laughs> one million miles away from Hollywood, going, motherfucker, are you this dumb? And he's like saying, he's like saying, oh yeah, Ethan Hawke, oh, look, I think he's a bit one note. Uh, you know, Christian Slater, oh, Jesus, we had great Jack Nicholson impersonation. It's like, dude, you've got one movie under your belt. Yeah. I wouldn't be doing this, but and it it really did sort of ki- uh, kibosh his career for a while. But then every seven years or so they'll try to make him happen. You know, he was mm. he got the lead in that Sofia Coppola movie where he's actually meant to be playing an A-list movie star. Yeah. And it's like, I see where you're coming from, and he's not bad. He can actually act, and he's got some presence, but you know he's not A-list. And then, yeah. But then every once in a while, he'll sort of, you know, make another comeback. He was in the third season of True Detective and did a really good job. And off mm. the back of that, he got a series, and that series got cancelled after, like, one season. So it's like we really want to make this guy happen, but yeah, people just aren't biting or they're not taking a big enough bite. I know we, we talked about this in a, a previous episode about Billy Zane, but that's, yeah. I always feel like Billy Zane was in that category as well. Like Billy Zane never slagged anyone off, but you know, around the late nineties with Phantom and, you know, playing the lead mm. villain in Titanic, it's a really good platform. And he was, and he's a good actor. Like, yeah. I don't think you can argue that he's not a good actor. But then he sort of just has seemed to got stuck in what you would, you know, once upon a time called director video. Hell, there's, yeah. I'm not sure if you're watching The Boys at the moment, but he plays himself in oh, really? the series of The Boys because they, they open by basically taking the piss out of himself as this B-movie actor. Like, if you're going to mm. make a knockoff or a cheap sequel, then Billy Zane's your guy. And I'm like, I get it, and I'm glad he's got a sense of humour about it, but it does kind of make me go, oh, Billy was my guy. Like, I always thought that, you no, know, Billy likewise. Zane should have been a bigger star. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember seeing him in Dead Calm back in 89 oh, or whatever. It's like, he's awesome. holy shit, this guy's fantastic. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's beautiful. He looks like young yeah. Brando. Yeah, and he's, exactly. And he's doing and he's doing some, you know, weird villainy shit. That's like, ah, uh, you've been watching Christopher Walken or or guys like that. I mean, you're sort of you're trying to throw a few um, a few odd wrinkles into it. Yeah, I'll tell you what it is, and this is very superficial. And I can say this as a bald man. <laughs> it's the it's the hair. The fact that uh, he had the very the early receding hairline, and he just decided to shave it all off. And his his bald head didn't look quite as good as say John Malkovich's or Bruce Willis's or something like that. I, I really? think that may have something to do with it. Yeah, you think he you needs to be it? he needs you to be in a Marvel movie. Plugs. Mm. A what? He needs to be in a Marvel movie. He needs to be like one of those Jeff Goldblum or oh, Benicio del Toro. I roles. reckon a, a Tarantino could revive 
And I could see those two gelling really well. Like I think that in the right kind of role, I think that Billy Zane would excel in the world of, of Quentin Tarantino. I just think he has something about him. And Tarantino does kind of tend mm. lean towards those B-movie guys. Like you know, he likes to kind of like elevate them. Um, so I, I could I, I could imagine a, a film in which Tarantino elevates Billy Zane, just gives him or, a role, or, like, you know, just a cameo. Or, or a, a Wes Anderson movie. I reckon he'd be very, very, very good in the yeah, Wes yeah. Anderson universe. I think he's good at comedy. I think he's good at oh, comedy. Yeah. I don't know how this turned into the Billy Zane podcast, but let's no. move on. <laughs> <laughs> I've saved... Well, uh, yeah. I've, I've Billy saved, Zane is um, a cool dude. <laughs> he's a cool guy. You should listen to him. Uh, <laughs> I've saved um, a, a, a filmmaker that I love, but I can't really explain why I love this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, having read recent reports about his private life, to be yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm talking it's, about it's Shane Woody Carruth. Allen. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm talking about Shane Carruth, um, who made uh, has only made directed two films, okay. Primer and Upstream Color. Now, Primer, most people will know as um, the most realistic time travel film, which is <laughs> such a fucking garbage uh, line because it's not time travel is impossible, does not exist. There is no such thing as a- <laughs> it's realistic time travel. Yeah. All they do in that is they use um, very authentic sounding engineering type and scientific dialogue, and they don't dumb it down. So that's why I think people go like, "Oh, it's realistic. I don't understand it." So you know, it's like. <laughs> It's like Homer Simpson watching Twin Peaks and going, I have no idea what's going on, but it's brilliant. <laughs> um, but you cannot argue that the the guy has really good taste. He has a specific mm. point of view and good taste. Like Primer is a really – I love it. I think it's a, such a, a fascinating, in, in, enthralling film. Like you can tell it's made for 10, 10 grand or whatever it's made yeah. for. But it's just such a – I remember I sat with my mate Mick and we got out a big bit of butcher's paper and we tried to like <laughs> uh, sketch out all the timelines and the looping timelines of Primer and, and got totally confused. And then when Upstream Colour came out, because my wife, Gem, she's also a big fan of his, and so we were so excited to go see Upstream Colour. And I've seen it, I think, maybe three times now, and I still don't know what it's about. Likewise. I've absolutely, yeah. I've absolutely no idea what he's trying to say. Or, but I – I, I I love that he wants to say it, and I think the films look amazing. Like even the you know the cheap media cam of, of Primer, there's a there's a definite specific point of view. Um, and I even went so far as I knew uh, my local revival cinema when I was living in Sydney uh, when Looper came out. Um, uh, uh, they did all this publicity about oh Shane Carruth was like you know the the special consultant to Ryan Johnson, and so. Um, they did this screening of Upstream Colour at my local cinema and then they did a uh, a chat with Shane Carruth uh, like via satellite. And I was in the audience and so uh, I asked a question about that. I was like, hey, man, like I heard that you were a consultant on on um, Looper. So what what did that consist of? And he's like, oh, it's gone, that's such bullshit. It's gone like Ryan Johnson asked me to read the script and so I read it. I didn't even really have any notes. But then from that, they used my name uh. as some kind of like <laughs> – because I guess that they knew that Prime had add this some, reputation. Yeah. yeah, that it would give it some kind of, of, of credence. But I just read an interview with Shane Carruth um, prior to these um, uh, these domestic violence allegations by his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend, which are horrible. But he did one of the most scorched earth <laughs> interviews. Like you're talking about <laughs> Stephen Dorff just plotting it, where he basically – he. Um, uh, he executive produced The Wanting Mare, which is a sci-fi film that came out last year that got great write-ups. Um, mm-hmm. I think it went to Sundance. I haven't seen it yet. I've been trying to see it, but it's not available anywhere in Australia yet. He executive produced that, and then he did this interview where he was just like, fuck Hollywood, fuck everything about this place, fuck these arrogant writers and fucking arrogant directors and fucking actors. Like, he really... He doesn't name anyone specifically, but Hollywood as a system, he's like, I've just got better things to do with my time than beg idiots, uh, you know, for money. And and you know, and then he starts is talking about how cinemas that show Marvel movies and art house movies if, as if they're the same thing, they're not. Like one is yeah. pure is pure junk, and the other thing is someone trying to say something. And it, it's a really fascinating interview. But you, I, I'm convinced he's not coming back. Like when oh. you read this. Like this sounds like a guy who's like, "Fuck this, I'm I'm never coming back," which is sad because I was, I I know he had he had a film that was meant to go into production with Keanu Reeves, 
about like sh- trade routes or like sh- it was yeah. like a shipping drama about eight or nine years ago. And he attached quite a good cast, but then nothing ever came of it. And then, yeah, the next thing was, fuck everyone, I'm out of here. Yeah. Well, it was called The Ocean Something or The Something Ocean or whatever. See if I can or, find it. Yeah. But uh, no, I, rem- yeah, I remember hearing about that and there was a lot of, t- oh my God, yeah. If you thought his previous two things were good, this is the thing that'll, this is what'll kick him up a notch. Or this is what will well, make it for he actually talked about that in his in this interview. He said that uh, after Primer, it was kind of like the Richard Kelly thing where everyone said to him, oh, man, like, you know, this is the ladder for you. To, you're going to do this and this. And it's the, and he believed it. And he was like, okay, well, that's what I'll do. But then he just got so, like, uh, disenfranchised Dis- yeah. with the studio system and the games he had to play and having to convince people. Because, I mean, he's quite a remarkable story really when you think that he's a guy who came from a completely like not an art didn't go to film school or anything just made this film for no money with his friends and then it got all these great write-ups and then he decided that i'm going to be an actor and so he's actually like got more acting credits than he has (laughs) as a writer or a director like he's done a couple of tv shows tales from the loop uh did a couple episodes of that in 2020 had a lead role in a film called the dead center which is kind of like a psychological thriller um, that i haven't seen yet uh, but I think he 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 obviously just is someone who was never really drawn into the Hollywood system. Like his ambition, no. either his ambition did not match the sacrifices or the shit eating he was going to have to do in order to become, you know, what what his agents were sort of hoping he was going to become. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I've I've seen Primer a few times. I've got it on on disc here, and uh, yeah, you're right. I I don't get it. I mean, it's, but it's one that I want to get, and that's what yeah. keeps drawing me back to it. There's enough. It gives me just enough that I'm like, I'm really close. <laughs> um, and likewise with Upstream Color. I mean, I've only seen that once, but I do have a copy around here and do want to watch it again because yeah, I remember sitting through and going, yeah, it's exactly like Homer Simpson. Like this is brilliant, but I've got no idea. But he's he's clearly got a lot of really big ideas uh, mm. that either I'm too dumb to pick up on, or he's not 100% successful in expressing. But he's also such a, a great technician slash artist that it's just a pleasure to sort of watch his movies. Upstream mm. Color in particular is yeah, it's like watching some weird undiscovered Russian masterpiece or something. It's yeah. Like, you know what I'm he reminds not- me of is is a bit like we've talked about Jeff Nichols. He, he he's like yeah. he's like a more art house Jeff Nichols, like yeah. same sort of same technical competence and themes and stuff, but much more or more esoteric, I guess than than Jeff. Jeff Nichols seems to be more grounded in reality with little you know flourishes of high concept. Whereas yeah, look in in you go back twenty years, and Jeff Nichols is. Just a, a run-of-the-mill mainstream filmmaker. I mean, Jim, he's an arty guy, but at the same time, he's a fairly mainstream guy. Mm. I mean, I think, to the best of my understanding, if, if we, we may have talked about this in the past, he really wanted to work in the mainstream. He was really sort of pitching big projects to Warner Brothers. I think mm. he actually made Midnight Special, one of my favourite movies the last 10 years, mm. as evidence or sort of like you know, proof of concept. It's like, I can do mainstream thriller action whatever with a bit of a sci-fi fantasy bent you know i think he was really he wanted to be in the running to do aquaman he he yeah it was coming up with concepts of that of course midnight special didn't make any damn money which is such a shame because it's such a great movie Um, yeah that's funny i watched i I watched the opening um scene of that just about two weeks ago just because i wanted to remind myself and it's fucking brilliant like talk about economic storytelling what they establish in that first two minutes of that film you know exactly yeah. what's at stake who the main characters are you know what the obstacles are what their goal is like it's yeah. brilliant it's really genuinely brilliant filmmaking yeah <laughs> all right well shall we go from the uh, sublime to the somewhat ridiculous <laughs> to the indecipherable yeah let's do it <laughs> all right i'm going to close out my uh, trio of review uh, review mirror uh, personalities and actors with olivier gruner <laughs> now, who was Olivia Gruner, you may ask, and you'd be justified in doing so, because um, in the 80s, uh, foreign muscle men who could kick your butt were Hollywood gold. You know, if yeah. you found one and you shaped it just right, 
Yeah, you were raking in that money, baby. Um, Schwarzenegger, of course, is the alpha male of this, but then you've got Van Damme as well. And then below Van Damme, you've got a few more. You know, people are yeah. clearly trolling the dojos of Europe to, to yeah. find. Uh, I mean, yeah, there was Europe. a plethora of Americans. You had like your Dudikoffs and your Dacascuses and, you know, all of those kind of guys. But if you wanted you to give it, I guess, maybe, I mean, maybe there was the thinking was it gives you greater international sales or something like that. Quite possibly, yeah. I mean, that might, actually, that's that, that's a really good point, Charlie. It's probably the case. But uh, so Maybe. Olivier Gruner is uh, is a French gentleman. Um, he um, came from a family of well, his his father was a very well renowned uh, surgeon. One of his brothers did likewise. One of his brothers became an engineer. Olivier just wanted to fight. He just wanted to kick butt. So um, from a very early age, he was. Uh, studying martial arts and when he hit 18 he joined the french military and became a literal fucking commando <laughs> <laughs> so he was in the military for a while he's you know buffing up and he's learning his killing skills there then he decides to um become a professional kickboxer by 1986 he is the world middleweight kickboxing champion by 1987 he retires from the game goes to the Cannes film festival and gets quote unquote discovered <laughs> now olivia gruner Handsome gentleman, French accent, mm. built like a brick shit house, can't act worth a lick. Terrible. Um, but he was the star of uh, a sci-fi actioner cyberpunk thriller that I really loved in the early 1990s called Nemesis. Uh, total Blade Runner knockoff, made for the change you found in the, in the back of the couch. Um, and yeah. He, he does some wonderful kick-ass work in it, you know, uh, with his uh, with his martial arts, etc. Um, also, you know, looks very capable firing a gun. They gave him the voiceover. They gave him the Rick Deckard-style narration. Oh, no. <laughs> they shouldn't have done it. <laughs> is it actually his <laughs> but nonetheless, voice? There's some... It is, yeah. Because right. here's the thing. This is more than you ever want to know about the 1992 sci-fi thriller Nemesis. No, but I remember watching... I remember watching it on DVD. No, so, yeah, no, on, on VHS. And one of the actresses who has this lovely, smoky, femme fatale kind of voice does the narration. I was like, this is really good. Yeah, and, and yeah. she's kind of a pivotal character. This, this works a treat. For some reason, I have owned four or five different iterations <laughs> of Nemesis as it's been upgraded over time. So now I have it on Blu-ray. And I put it in the Blu-ray and then... It starts, and I'm expecting to hear this uh, this narration by this actress, and instead I get, life is tough in the future. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, Looking at this, yeah, that, uh, this, this cast list, see Thomas Jane and Jackie L. Haley. So, I mean, you know, you've got yeah. some Oscar-caliber talent working on this. I think it's one of Thomas Jane's, like, first roles, and he's, like, completely butt-naked for the most part. <laughs> um, Jackie Earl Haley is in it for approximately five seconds. This is in oh, between okay. his um, his bad uh, news bra days, breaking, breaking away free, days, yeah, and um, and his comeback in uh, Watchmen and all that a little later on. So he's kind of in the wilderness at this stage. Right. Uh, but yeah, the great Tim Thomason of Future Cop fame is in there, and a few others. Um, but yeah, Nemesis is it's good junk. It's junk, but it's good junk. But it's but it's you know led by this absolute lummox. And I was just I'm I'm always um, really interested in like the second and third acts of as with actresses, as with starlets like Jenny Wright or Angela Featherstone, mm. the muscle guys. You know, I mean, I think they have a bit more of a um, a path into into a later career. I mean, as you've seen by the you know, they've made they've made four Expendables movies. Well, they've the fourth one's coming out later this year. And, you know, every um, well-known actor worth their salt, if they can walk without a Zimmer frame and they're in their 60s mm. or 70s, like, let's put a gun in their hand and, you know, maybe this could be their taken. So, um, mm. but, but martial arts guys, I don't think they normally really do that much. So I wanted to see what Olivia was doing these days. And, well, yeah, after a career that involved titles like Mercenary, in Interceptors, Interceptor Force 2, and TNT, um, he's moving behind the camera and directing things like Sector 4, Extraction. So, <laughs> but according to his website, because um, he's 62 years old now, um, let's see, quote unquote, Olivier has many plans for the future. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's what good. they nice actually entail, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, 
if you make an Expendables five or, or even an Expendables knockoff that has the guys who aren't famous enough to be in the Expendables, like Dudikoff or whatever, mm. like you know, get yeah. the American Ninja guy and get Olivia Gruner in there. It's funny too, like because action films kind of changed in the nineties. I remember actually Sly Stallone talking about it, and he said that he knew like action movies were in trouble when the first Batman, Tim Burton's Batman, came out, mm. and Michael Keaton was in that muscle suit because now. He's like, oh, well, you don't actually need to be a big guy. Like, they can just you know, make it happen with costumes and CGI. And then yeah. I think The Matrix was the next nail in the coffin because it's like, well, if you just take any cast away and just train them for six months, you can make anyone look like a martial artist or an action star. I mean, I think that sort of changed the game as well because it's like, oh, so you can actually – because it used to be you had to make a choice, right? You get a good actor – who doesn't mm. know how to do action <laughs> or you get like a martial artist, you can't fucking act. But now yeah. you can take away like Lawrence Fishburne and teach him how to do a roundhouse <laughs> kick and all of a sudden you got the best of both worlds, right? Yeah. Well, like we said when we talked about uh, about Bruce Willis in that episode, he was the uh, he was equidistant between the two of them. He was the actor who could convince as an action hero. But mm. yeah, I mean, from the, um, from the late 90s onwards, it was like, well, yeah, you know, with a bit of wire work, a little bit of CG, but also a lot of training. Yeah, Keanu is very convincing in the Matrix. Or you know, Matt Damon has clearly you know been hitting the gym and the and been working with a trainer, and now he's convincing as Jason Bourne. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, but before that, it was like oh, yeah, we'd better get Arnold in because you know no one would believe otherwise that um, any of our leading men could actually kick this much ass. The weirdest one I uh, in recent memory was when Agent Brody got buffed for Predators. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like he's all like shirtless and shit. And I'm like, I don't know. I like this Adrian Brody. I like, I like nerdy, tortured Adrian Brody. I don't like shirtless. I'm a commando Adrian Brody. It doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah. And he didn't really need to do it, did he? Because I mean, didn't need to be shirtless I, at all. He's no, fighting an alien. Like, he having was muscles really, doesn't. No. It's like as, big, you with- as roided up as you are. Yeah, I'm still. I'm pretty sure the predator's still going to beat you in a fist fight. But yeah. for the bulk of that movie as well, he's he's like, this is actually a really neat twist that he's not, you know, a, a muscle bound Superman. He's actually more of a sort of a lean, mean, you know, guy who sort of like survives in war zones by his wits and grit and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, then at the end, it's like, better show you guys have been uh, working out. <laughs> yeah, it's like I always that's impressive, too, but you're but right. It's like man, I don't know. <clears throat> hot shots too. When Charlie Sheen <gasps> got really buff, hot shots too. Oh, and it's like, yeah. are you the first like actor in a in a in a like a screwball spoof comedy to have gotten like super jacked? <laughs> that was so unusual, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guy. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Stepping into the video store. Um, oh. If you want to uh, hear Guy talk about The Simpsons, you can. He has a podcast called five, uh, five, four, five, four Finger Discount. Sorry. Four Finger Discount. <laughs> four Finger Discount. I'll put a link in the episode description below. Um, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at Robert Guy Davis. Uh, yes, dispensing uh, uh, what I'm watching tonight. And, uh, oh, I love it. What- a Guy Davis update is, is fantastic. <laughs> I get excited when I see you. Going, especially if it's late at night, because I know I'm going to get some real interesting observations. <laughs> late at night is what I'm watching. During the day is, Jesus Christ, this is pissing me off. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you do. It's like silly. And, and you, you, you love to rail against writers. You love to rail against writers who either do like revisionist histories of films that absolutely suck and cannot be revived, or just the pithy <laughs> statements. The pithy clickbait headlines, you fucking, that's a bugbear of yours, isn't it? Not a fan. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie, thank you so much for having me uh, having me back on board, welcoming me into the video shop. It's always, always, always a pleasure. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Guy Davis. Mm-hmm.